Good? All right. All right. That was beautiful, wasn't it? A little uh, Holy Ghost party going on in here today. I love it. Ironically, but not coincidentally, that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Baptism of the Spirit and what that looked like in Acts chapter 2. And, and I'm excited. So, you know, the last few weeks, what we've been talking about since the beginning of the year is this, this vision, this direction, right, to go. And, you know, we've been going through sort of like uh, what that looks like in the life, biblically, what that looks like in the life of a believer, the church, and uh, our calling. We've talked about how, you know, we need to be recognized as those who have been with Christ. We need to leverage the gifts and the abilities, the influences and the affluences that God has blessed us with for the kingdom. So like, as Paul says, that we might win some for Christ. Right? That's our goal. That's it. And, oh, and, and one thing that I've learned in all these crazy years of me kicking and screaming with Jesus is that it's not about me. You know, it's not about me. Once I am saved and being sanctified, once I am being used and filled with the Spirit, then it is the goal of all of us, and my goal personally, that we reach some, win some, and live for Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, is do you want to live and speak more boldly for Jesus Christ? Do you really want to? Because the question is, is then how badly do you want it? How badly do you want to be used like these men and women that we read about in, in the book of Acts? Right? Do, do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that when you enter a place that God is immediately using you? that you're immediately sensitive and aware of the callings and opportunity that he has presented or placed all around you? Do you want to live ready? Right? Do we want it enough to ask, seek, and knock until God answers us and then take the risks and, and challenge our timidity? Because that's really what this comes down to. If we're honest, we'd rather just keep wishing we were bolder. Right? A lot of times that's the case. Admiring bold people being inspired by biographies and stories about other bold people, talking with our friends and our small groups about our struggles with boldness. I wish I was more bold while staying where we feel safe and relatively comfortable and letting fear go unchallenged. That's the battle line. It really is. It's those who rise up and those who shrink back. That line right there is what matters the kingdom is, is won. The kingdom, the battles, the spiritual ones are fought and won when we're brave enough and courageous enough and bold enough to step over that line and to be who God has called us to be. You know, Paul shares in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, he says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. He says that these are opposed to each other and that to keep us from doing the things that we want to do or should do. That every single one of us, including Paul, dealt with this daily battle between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit of God telling me I should do this. I ought to do this. I need to do that. And then my flesh going, you don't really have to right now. You can wait till later. Someone else will do that. Or this feels really good. Hey, what's one more time? Isn't that the battle? 
day in and day out. And so if you're going to be bold for the kingdom, if you're going to be bold for Jesus, then it comes to making that choice and not just intellectually, but wholeheartedly. Like, I want to be bold. When I asked you, do you want to be bold for Jesus? You say yes. And it's like, okay, I've made that decision mentally, but now where's my heart in that? Where's my heart? Is it whatever it takes, Jesus? Joshua chapter 24, he says this. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. Everybody has a choice every single day when they wake up to choose whom they will serve. Will we, will we try to straddle the line like I talked about? Will we try to serve two masters? Will we try to keep a foot in both camps? Will we keep entertaining the things of the world and try to give God some of our attention? But something has to sit on the throne of your heart. It always does. See, boldness in the biblical sense is not a personality trait. We're not born with it. See, some of us might be more extroverted or outspoken than others, but that's not biblical boldness. That's not what we're talking about here. I mean, some of us, let's just face it, we're rude, we're obnoxious. We're in your face a little bit. I was known for being kind of an outspoken jerk. Brian, Pastor Brian will attest to that, and some others who are here today. (laughs) But see, boldness is acting, and this is the key phrase, by the power of the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction when we're presented with the opportunity or the need, even in the face of a threat. By the power of the Spirit, we become bold. We become willing. See, that last statement contains the three ingredients to Christian boldness. Spirit-empowered conviction, courage, and urgency. That's what spirit-empowered boldness looks like. See, courage is not the same thing as boldness. However, we must possess courage to be bold. It is not the same thing. There's a slight difference. See, where boldness comes from the Spirit... Courage is derived from faith. Faith that we can trust God and his promises even in the face of danger. No matter what, I know how this ends. I know who my my God is. I know my God's promises and standing in that firmness. And so that's my sermon title today. Be bold and courageous. Be bold and courageous. See, we're back in the book of Acts this week. And in the book of Acts, you know, we we see a lot of powerful examples of what boldness and courage look like. This was the first church. This is where Jesus ascended and he said, all right, now go. And And, you know, these guys who, and these men and these women who had messed up so much and who had been pouring into for the last few years were now on their own. The training wheels were off. And so... In Acts chapter 2, we see this moment where the Holy Spirit took hold of the disciples and emboldened them to preach the gospel publicly and unashamedly. There was this change, right? Something happened in them. They witnessed something, and they were bold, and there was something happening within them. And so in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we also see a spirit-filled Stephen courageously facing the consequences of his boldness. And as he stands confidently against his accusers, and even death himself itself, his courage 
withstands. It's amazing, right? And so I want to I wanna just sh- sort of share some background here. You know, it's good. It's, if we're going to exegete Scripture properly, <coughs> excuse me, interpret it properly, then we need to have some context. We need to understand. And so I try to do this as much as possible. But right now what's happening in the beginning of this book of Acts is there's this huge festival going on in Jerusalem, right? This Jewish festival is called Shavuot. And, and, and basically, this is one of the three major festivals that happen in Jerusalem or for the Jewish people throughout the year. And so that draws a huge crowd, people from all nations, all Jews from all nations are come back to Jerusalem after 50 days earlier. They were just there for the Passover. And so, again, God is very intentional with his timing, isn't he? And so, as I said, it celebrated the 50th day after Passover, seven weeks and one day. And it's also known as the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of 50 Days. That's what, it's, that's what it translates to. And there's a fun fact here. See, the term Pentecost comes from the Greek word Pentecosti, and it means 50th, right? It was used for this feast, or so it was called the Day of Pentecost. So if you're reading your Bibles, it will say the Day of Pentecost. And when we, it says, when the Day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together. So this is already in existence, this day of Pentecost, prior to this, this moment, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that was just going to happen. See, we, we a lot of times think that this is a New Testament word only referring to the day the disciples were baptized, but it was only called that because of the day it fell on. That's where the word Pentecostal comes from, 50. And so it was this also, uh, not coincidentally again, the same day that Moses received the law from God himself. So God, again, very organized, very intentional, everything, order in God's kingdom. Amen? And so disciples, here they are. They're waiting in the upper room, 120 of them, right? Figure, you know, 120 people in a room smaller than this, much smaller than this, because they didn't really have buildings of this size back then. Most of the times it would be like an upper room, a rooftop, probably a courtyard they spilled over to. But you have 120 people waiting for this promised baptism that Jesus talked about in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. It says to wait for a promised baptism of the Holy Spirit that would empower them to be witnesses, Jesus said. And then he ascended. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to recognize or at least take note of is that for 10 days prior to the baptism of the Spirit, and they had no idea what the time frame was going to look like, Jesus just said, wait, and they obeyed. 120 people together in obedience, meeting in a room, waiting for 10 days, not knowing when this baptism of this Holy Spirit was going to show up, but they waited. Man, we have the, the, the filling of the Spirit already, don't we? And yet it's still hard for us to wait for an hour or two for God in this place, isn't it? I know you complain about how long I preach. I get it. Now I'm going to preach even longer. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. My point is, is that for 10 days, barring the Spirit of God, they sat and waited and prayed and worshipped. And God showed up. And so think about this. You know, when moves of God happen, it's typically because or the result of acts of obedience. Patient waiting. Be still. Let God. And this is what has to happen, right? So let's not forget who these people were either. You know? 
prior to the resurrection, there was a lot of stuff that happened. You know, this was this was not a group of people, especially the 12 who were who were notably bold or courageous. Peter denied Jesus three times in his presence, didn't he? The night he was resurrected, his best friend, his right hand. I mean, we saw them. They all scattered. They all ran and hid out of fear. So we wouldn't characterize them as bold or courageous. But here they are, 120 now huddled together, just waiting on God. And there's just something so beautiful about that to me. There's just something so amazing that 120 people would stay together obediently waiting and not knowing how long or what they were waiting for exactly. But they were obedient and they trusted God. Man, we can learn from this. We can learn from this. And so as I said, this boldness, it comes only from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, just the first 13 verses to you. And you can read along. I think we are now putting them on the screen for you. So now there's no excuse. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing of wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. I mean, I want you to picture that. You're sitting here in this room, and all of a sudden there's this violent rush of wind, this noise. It must have sounded like a locomotive, right? And it just came in and filled the house. And then it says, wherever they were sitting, appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Can you imagine if that happened right now? Can you imagine? This supernatural act, this filling of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, It was a palpable, real, tangible experience. It wasn't just sort of metaphorical. It wasn't sort of just this thing like, you know, an emotional connection with God. It wasn't because the song you love was being played. Or you were just in the right mood or in the right posture. No, the Holy Spirit came and invaded that room and invaded that people's lives. And it changed them radically forever. As a matter of fact, it changed the church radically forever. The reason you're sitting here right now is because the Holy Spirit came and invaded the lives of 120 people. Think about that. And it's the same spirit that dwells in each and every one of you. The same spirit. I mean, we say that all the time, but do we realize what that means? The gravity of that statement? The power of that statement? That that spirit of God, those tongues of fire, that... Power rests in each and every one of us who said yes to Christ. It says, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. It says, and now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under the heaven. They were all there. And when the sound occurred, this loud, rushing, violent wind, the crowd came together. They want to know what's going on. And it says they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Notice there's a change in, in when we translate. You know, as you know, we lose something in translation, right? 
But I want to go back to where it says, it began to speak with other tongues, and now we hear them in their own language. Tongues, glossolalia, is language. It's a very intentional or real language. And then when you go into hearing him in his own language in verse 6, they actually use the Greek word dialecto, meaning, meaning, they could hear them not just in their language, but also in their dialect. Now, I, I don't, I think we overlook this sometimes because, you know, again, we're lost in translation, right? Or we don't, you know, know the Greek or the Hebrew or whatever. But I want you to think about this. And this is a can of worms that I opened up in the first service, but there were no fights. So thank God for that, right? But I, but I want to just ask you, who here, who here derives or comes from the islands of Portugal, the Azores? Raise your hands. Come on, loud and proud. Okay, good. You see that? Who here, who here comes from the continent of Portugal? Aha. Uh-huh. Now you all know. You've all been revealed. <laughs> and then if you go to Brazil, you get a whole other can of worms. We got any Brazilians in here? Oh, oh we got a couple. I thought we'd have a Brazilian of them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, so, yeah, it was terrible, I know. But I can't pass up a dad joke, neither can Dave. I know. So my, my point is, I want you to just think about this for a second. And if you're from the continent, and Tiago actually texted me after the first service, so it must have been his girlfriend. She must have ratted on me and said I talked about. But he's, him and his family, they're from the continent. And so he said, I can't believe you talked about the continent without me there. So I'm raising my hand for him. How's that? <laughs> Crazy Tiago. So, so the point is, if you're from the continent and you're speaking to someone from the islands, there is a very big difference in dialect, isn't there? Right? Who's better? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> See, that was a rumble at 1230 in the church parking lot. No, so, so my point is, is that it's the same language, but there's some nuances. There's some dialect differences, right? Just like there is in Brazil, just like, again, so it's the same thing back then, 2,000 years ago, where these people were speaking Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek, right? All these different dialects because of the regions they live with, lived in. Who's from Fall River in this place? <laughs> Different dialect, right? I won't even go there. I, I was going to imitate it, but I won't. My point is, you can drive 15 minutes and you have a different dialect, right? So here it is. This is the intricacies I'm talking about with God. God is in the details, Right, So these people, not only do they adopt this new language that they never knew, they're also speaking in specific dialect that all of these thousands of people are from. Do you realize how miraculous that is? Just think, let's go on now. Let's read what it says. It says, they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Like, aren't they from New Bedford? (laughs) Right? Who are these people? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? And then it goes on and it says, you know, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and the visitors from Rome and both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues again, our own language, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, it says, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
What is this miraculous thing that's happening? What does it mean? And what others were mocking and saying, well, they're just full of sweet wine. They're drunk. What a, what a great illustration, though, of the elect. What a great illustration of how God was speaking to a very specific people in a specific dialect, in a specific language. And those who were supposed to hear it, heard it. Those who were supposed to receive it, received it. The grace was being poured out on these people. And God was speaking to them. And it says 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people were saved through that. And when we say people, it's always men, right? That's how they gauge it. So it's men and their families. So it was more than 3,000 people. As I talked about just recently in Acts chapter 4, after Peter preached in the temple, 5,000 men and their families were saved. You're talking about just in a matter of a couple of days, you had over 10,000 people added to the church from 120 obedient people. Church, what can we do? You got about 500 plus people that walk through these doors on a Sunday. What can we do if we wait in obedience, if we walk in obedience, if we walk and be filled with the Holy Spirit and do what it is God has called us to do when we go? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the power of God moving and working through the local church rather than us just coming here to have an experience, right? An emotional experience and a motivation and then leaving here and not doing anything different not leveraging our gifts, not walking in the Spirit, not going and telling people about the Jesus who saved your life, who saved your soul, who can save anyone. Boldness comes from the indwelling of the Spirit. And so, if boldness doesn't come from Him, then it's really not Christian boldness at all as much as it's just being brash or outspoken. See, I think sometimes we mistake rudeness and lack of filters for being bold, but that's not from being full of the Spirit, though. Right? It's kind of just being obnoxious. I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7. He says this. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. Now stop and pause for a second because that's where we usually end the verse. He loses us right there because we love having that spirit of power. And it's almost like we tune out the, the last part. It says, and love and discipline. Spirit of power and love and discipline. And so what does that look like? Notice that power is coupled with love and discipline, meaning it is not rude or cocky, this boldness. It comes from a place of love and self-discipline. You know, James says, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. That's what the Spirit does, enables and empowers us to be slow to speak, to be quick to listen, slow to anger, to be full of love, to be full of discipline, not just the power of God, but actually the character of God. And I love what Pastor Brian, he said this to me years back. I think he preached it, and he might have said it to me in person, but it's been with me probably for the last six or seven years. He said, grace is the envelope truth comes in. Grace is the envelope truth comes in. You may know the truth. You may, be able, you may have somebody's audience to speak the truth, but if you lack grace and you lack love and you lack discipline, well, guess what? You're just a resounding gong and a jerk. 
But if we can actually, you know, with gracious tongues, with a loving heart, with a disciplined mind, start to engage people in a way, meet them where they're at, love them for who they are, understand that it's a process and that you're in the same process as them, that you were once lost, that you were once blind, then we can actually begin to preach the gospel, lead people to Christ, show them Christ the way we're supposed to. See, we see the evidence of this boldness and power from the Spirit as these once fearful disciples instantly become bold in taking the risk to preach the gospel. Instantly. And, you know, you got to think about this for a second. Because just in a couple of chapters later in Acts 4, as I said, Peter and John were arrested for preaching this gospel. There was a risk here. They knew that, I mean, think about this. This is a big feast going on. This is a big Jewish feast. It's one of the big three. Can you imagine how upset the Jewish leaders would be if they come out, 120 of them, and snatch 3,000 people and their families right off the bat? That's, that's an uproar. That's, they're, they're turning over the apple cart. And so it is definitely something that it, it, it contained risk, a high risk, but they didn't care because they were excited. They were full of the spirit, it says. Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember how exciting it was? Do you remember like you were living a certain way for so long and then all of a sudden you had an encounter with God and you were like, oh my God, nothing is the same anymore. Like nothing. You don't see people the same. You don't dream the same. You don't speak the same. You don't want the same things. You know, the, the grass is greener. The, the sky is bluer. The birds are louder. And you're excited I don't know about you, but I remember when I had that encounter with God, it was like no matter where I went, no matter what I was doing, I couldn't help but tell people about my Jesus. Right? You know, I'd be standing in a grocery store in a checkout line, you know, with my basket. And then, you know, someone's like, how are you today? Hey, how's it? Do you know who Jesus is? I was a drug addict for 20 years, and now what? And they're like... paper please (laughs) you know obviously there's a a certain amount of discernment that needs to go along with our excitement right but man I think what ends up happening is is we stifle it so much that we lose our passion you know I I, I think about Paul and and his courage no matter what you know him and Silas excited and and celebrating because they were just beaten and imprisoned in the name of Jesus can you believe what just happened? Look at my bruises. You know, here we are just trying not to upset a coworker. You know, I don't want to argue with my family member. I don't want to bring up anything at the Thanksgiving table that might ruffle some feathers. And we live really safely. Man, if you've never seen Francis Chan's little video called Balance Beam, go Google it. You know, it, it really does describe the American Christian life. You know, we we spend so much time just straddling the beam, holding on tight, just so nothing else, you know, gets too uncomfortable or rattles anybody's cages. And then we we just want to die in our sleep, he says, and just kind of roll off the, the beam real carefully and then dismount like we did something really miraculous and special. But we're called to live courageously and boldly for Jesus Christ. I mean, look at what these guys went through. This is the first church. This is the beginning of this thing. See, the purpose of the baptism of the Spirit was to spread the gospel, which in turn would build the kingdom and then glorify God. 
That's it. That's what he's saying. It's not just so a group of spirit-filled people could come together on a Sunday, sit in a building together, and stammer on in utterance without any purpose. There's got to be a purpose. There's got to be fruit. God has got to be glorified. People have got to be one for the kingdom. That's what this is all about. This is a short time here in this life. This goes by so quickly, and some of you know this better than others. I shared with you last week that I was going to see a friend after service, you know, that I had grown up with since I was 14 years old. And, you know, the biggest compliment I got was from his wife when she said to me, you know, you led him to Jesus, and that is the greatest gift you could have ever done, and we are eternally grateful. And I said, man, if that's the only thing I ever brought into his life, that is enough. There is no greater compliment and so, like, to me, it's, it's like, if that's what we shoot for, that's what we aim for, and stop allowing these competing things to take precedence or to become priority or have a, a seat in that throne on our heart, then we miss it. We become unsavory salt. We become useless in the kingdom. And sure, we might slide into heaven under the technicality, but when we stand before him, is he going to say, welcome, my good and faithful servant, or flee from me? I never knew you. Because we are called to live. You know, faith saves, not works. But works comes from faith. You know, and I think it was Luther who said, is that, you know, a, a I'm sorry, a faith that saves is never alone. Right? Works is not what saves us, but it comes with it. We are called as a result of gratitude and the indwelling of the Spirit and, the, and, and just the, the obedience to live a life for Christ. And we miss it. You know, there's a word, xenolalia. And what it means is the ability to speak in a language in which the individual has never learned, never been educated on, and never been taught. Xenolalia. And there are, this phenomena is actually real. It's happened not just in the book of Acts chapter 2, but throughout history, there are moments of this. They have been recorded. And it's always had purpose. It's always been for reaching a people. It's always been so God could speak to the lost through us, vessels. And it's only willingness that allows that to happen, being filled with the Spirit of God. See, in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, we read that the disciples were speaking to people in 15 different languages, languages they had not previously owned. And, and as I said, Galileans weren't known to be cultured people. They were actually known to be poor communicators, kind of like... Us New Bedford people, I hate to say it, you know? New Bedford, wicked cool place. You go elsewhere, people know who you are right away. You're from Boston? But they were blue collar, right? They weren't known for eloquence or education. They were known as workers, not culture. And so the question was being asked, you know, what does this mean? How is this happening? We heard this crazy noise. We, it drew us all in. And now all of a sudden, these guys are all speaking in our languages. And they're speaking of the wisdom of God. It doesn't even make sense. And so what gave them this ability to preach the gospel in all these languages? What gives them the boldness to do it? And the answer is simple. It didn't come from them. It came from God, the Holy Spirit. That is the answer. So let's refer back to Acts chapter 4 that I shared on a couple of weeks back. And this, Acts, this portion of Acts chapter 4, it obviously happened after the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we just read about in Acts 2, right? 
So Peter and John, they were arrested for preaching the gospel after healing a man at the gate called Beautiful outside of the temple. And after being interrogated and threatened and then released, they returned to their friends. They go back to their people. And then we read this in verses 29 through 31. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Even in light of the challenge and threat that we face, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's the key. There is this sort of humility and dependence on God. Lord, give us this boldness. Lord, in spite of, despite all of these threats that are all around us and what we just went through, Lord, we're asking you to give us boldness. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, use us in a powerful way. Use us in a way, God, that will glorify you and grow your kingdom. And what ends up happening is they were filled with the spirit and the whole place shook. And they spoke the word of God boldly because that's how God answered their prayer. Boldness and the ability to share the gospel. See, again, we're seeing this correlation between boldness and the filling of the spirit because we know it is a spiritual gift from God. You may be an extrovert. That may be your nature. But unless you are filled with the spirit and unless you are operating the spirit, then it is not your spiritual gift you're exercising. And there's a, a man, his name, he was a theologian around the turn of the 19th, uh, 20th century, A.B. Simp Simpsons, excuse me. And he writes this, he says, one of the special marks of the Holy Ghost in the apostolic church was the spirit of boldness. That was how they were marked. That was how they were known. The apostolic church was known to be filled with the Holy Spirit and bold, no matter what. And they were getting arrested and martyred and killed. It says, as long as we're filled with the Spirit, then the boldness will come. And so if we're shrinking back and we're missing opportunities, it's a good chance that you're in the, in the carnal nature. You're operating in the flesh. See, as long as man is going to be bold and proud in their sin and in their faith, in your face, because if you look at the world around you, it's pretty plain to see that they are, there is a, a boldness about sin now, a celebration of sin now then that means that we're going to have to be just as bold about Jesus. We're going to have to be just as proud of our Christ. We're going to have to be just as celebratory of what we have so that we might win some for Jesus Christ. Amen? I want to tell you that if the Spirit breeds boldness, then that means our boldness, in our boldness, we're going to find ourselves in situations where we might be rejected, we might be mocked, Laughed at, confronted, hated, and in some circumstances and in some regions of the world, even worse. I'm going to tell you another momentous event out of the book of Acts, and it's a story of a man named Stephen. And so I want to go to Acts chapter 6 and, and just read a few excerpts here, so that way I can catch you up to speed. But Stephen, you know, is a spirit-filled believer in that first church, and it says in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Right? He's full of spirit. He's full of grace. He's full of power. And, he's, and I love that. It says full of grace. You know, it's important that we see that first. And he's performing these great wonders and signs. 
And it says, some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. Because now they're getting sick of this. They're getting tired of this. Because this power that these people, these men of Jesus, you know, possess, and the, and the effect that it's having on their religion now, on their belief system, and on their people, is now starting to get to be a problem. And it says, in verse 10, I love this, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Here's educated men, leaders of the temple. These are religious leaders, experts in the law. These are not slouches, people who had, you know, seminary-type degrees and more. And they come up to Stephen, who is just a nobody, right? And they, they're like, listen, you can't, you know, whatever it is. And he's just like dazzling them and shutting them down. It says they couldn't cope because the power of God is so, so manifest in him that they're no match for it. That's the boldness that we're talking about. And now if you go down to chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2, it says, The high priest said, after hearing all of these things about God, and that they were uh, no match, are these things so? Is what he's saying true? And it says, and he said, Stephen, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Peter, uh, excuse me, Stephen goes on to talk about the oracles and the truths that they knew. How would Stephen know all of this stuff? Who is he? He's, he's a Galilean. He's a simple man. He's uneducated. He's just this guy. All of a sudden performing miracles and saying things that only they would know. And so you go on to verse 54 and 58 as he continues to go on about the oracles and to recite Old Testament law to them. He goes on in verse 54, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They didn't like what he had to say because he was taking their word, what they knew, and he was pushing it back at them and saying, you're missing this. The Messiah has come and you've rejected him and you've killed him. And now here we are and they're mad and says, I love this. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They're, they're like infuriated, this mob now of religious people. And they're gnashing their teeth and he's just standing there in confidence and boldness. Right? And he just says, I see God. I see Jesus. And there's this peace about him, right? And it says, they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse and one movement all together. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses, they laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man whom we know as Paul, Saul. And so think about this. Where is Stephen's courage coming from in the face of this? Where is Stephen's courage coming from when he faces religious leaders who know or who are more educated than him? Courage comes from the knowledge of the word. Courage is birthed from a place of intellectual reassurance. Have you noticed that in your life? 
That when you are intellectually reassured, when you know the end result or the possibilities or the probabilities that you're a lot more courageous than you would be if you didn't. And we know how this all ends, don't we? I mean, we've seen and we've read the book of Revelations. We know that he's coming back for his people. We know who wins, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who comes back triumphantly for his church. And so this is where our coverage comes from. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for, right? Confidence. And also the assurance about what we haven't seen yet, what we do not see. So we are confident and assured by these things in faith. And then Romans 10, verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith not only saves us, but it also sustains and empowers us. It gives us courage because we get this confidence and this assurance and then what ends up happening is, is that by reading and hearing the word of Christ this morning, who's encouraged this morning? Who's encouraged when you hear the word of God preached and you know your end result? You know where this all goes. You should feel empowered. You should feel battle ready when you leave this place. And so that's what the word of God does. It breeds confident assurance. And so when we believe we can overcome something, then courage ensues. Who played sports or plays sports? right? You go into a big game or, or a battle or a wrestling, or basketball, baseball, foot, it doesn't matter, right? And you've practiced and you've played and you know your sport, you know your role. And you're going up against maybe a formidable, a formidable excuse me, opponent, right? And you know that they have the capability to beat you, but you know you're going to win because you got the edge. You got that little extra, that, what it takes, and so you go in there confident. You go into that match or that game or that contest confidently with courage and boldness because of what you know. And so this is sort of the same thing. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. It says, and I, the, the key phrase here is in verse 38 where he says, for I am convinced See, once a man is convinced of something, you cannot unconvince him. I always say a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. People will argue with me about faith all the time, and I just smile. And they're like, don't you have anything to say? I say, no, because I've experienced God. I understand the truth of the Bible. I know the gospel. I'm a living proof of the power of God. So you can have the greatest argument in the world. I used to have those two when I was an atheist. And guess what? I never argued anyone out of or into the faith. Because a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And so Paul is convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present nor future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul just knows this. And so you can't beat him. You can't beat him. No matter what happens, Paul is just like, I'm doing this for God and I know how this ends. So Paul says, I am convinced that nothing is greater than the grip of God's love through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the confidence we ought to have, church. That we are convinced that nothing on this, in this life or on this planet could ever separate us from the love of God that we have found in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so that is the importance here. That is the importance. I said, my friend who passed this week, you know, one of the things we celebrate in his death is that he knew Jesus. Like we know that this was just the beginning for him, that eternity has started, that he lives in glory and worships the Lord all day now. And so there's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more sorrow. There's no more tears or death. That's how it ends. And it says this knowledge and assurance makes us courageous in facing the consequences of our boldness. When I know how this ends, then I'm, all, I'm a lot more able to stand bravely in the face of the consequences that my boldness may bring. And I'll tell you what, in this country, it's not too severe. So you might not be liked. You might lose a friend. You might be laughed at. Oh, well. Oh, well. What's the reward? My friend is going to another place who will spend eternity with the, with the Lord because I was bold with him, because I wasn't afraid. I did not shrink back. And when he reached out to me and said, what is it about you? I said, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus. It's not me. I didn't go through some self-help program. I didn't get rehabilitated. No, the Lord invaded my life. His grace changed who I was. And so now I live for him. And so here's the opportunity. It's also available to you. And reluctantly, he came. And over the years, he fell in love with Jesus too. And that's what the gospel is all about. That's our purpose, nothing more. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's Paul's position, Romans 8.31. If God is for me, the living God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings is for me, then who cares who's against me? Who cares? Stephen preached with boldness, and when he was confronted with facing death, he was courageous because he knew God was for him. He knew this beyond any shadow of a doubt. It says, you know, he was not only spirit-filled, but, but Stephen was faith-filled. He was faith-filled, and there was a fear of God, too. And I heard this, and I don't know if whoever sent this to me. I can't remember because I get tons of messages and emails and texts, and I, and I try to listen as much as I can. Somebody sent me a video, and the guy in the video, I was watching it, and it said, a lot of people love Jesus, but not enough people fear the Lord. And, you know, that's another part of this. I mean, I could go on and expound on that. But, you know, what, what spirit-filled and faith-filled people need is also a healthy fear, a love for Jesus and a fear of the Lord. Because when we understand who is for us and that he's greater than anything that threatens us, there's going to be a healthy fear that goes along with that. Because he's the only one who can kill the soul. Do not fear the one who can kill the flesh, the Lord says. Fear the one who can kill the soul. And that's our God. And so Stephen knew who his God was, and he knew his promises. And that's what allowed him to stand there courageously. See, in nearly every incident where God says, fear not, there follows a reason to have courage. And inevitably, that reason always is the Lord himself. It's his nature, and it's his perfect plan. Those are the things that he gives us. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, I go before you. Fear not, I'll never leave or forsaken you. Fear not, I have overcome it's always, I have overcome. I am with you. He is the reason. Psalm 27, verse 1, it says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It says, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I'm going to have the worship team come back up. So that way you guys don't get mad at me for preaching another half hour. 
But I'm going to tell you, this is important stuff. Because if, if we have all these gifts and we have all these opportunities and we have all of this, you know, stuff to leverage for the kingdom, influence and networks and relationships, and we are not bold and we are not courageous, then what good is it? It's just sitting there on the shelf being wasted. And so our job is to become bold and courageous and rattle the gates of hell. That's your job, church. I don't care if you're eight or 80. It doesn't matter. Your job, it's the, the outer man perishes, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. The spirit in you is the same spirit that Stephen had in him, that Paul and Peter and John had in him. The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is in you. The same tongues of fire that rested on the apostles and the disciples that day. That's the spirit that you have access to. Don't just sip from his cup. Drink fully. Experience him fully. A lot of us have never experienced, we have this faith in the indwelling of the Spirit. We've never really experienced what people, some describe as a baptism of the Spirit or a second baptism. Call it what you want. It's semantics. I'm going to tell you this, though. Until you have that encounter with the living God, you'll be unchanged. You won't realize or or understand your gifts. They won't be usable. We can't shrink back from the mission God's called us to. So if we're going to go for God and live ready, then boldness and courage are essential. Pray to be filled with the Spirit, church. Pray to, to be bold for Jesus and bury yourself in the Word so that when you're confronted, questioned, or fearful, you'll be able to find the courage to stand firm and preach Jesus. When we're filled with the Spirit and immersed with the Word, when the moments that come that call us to be bold and courageous, we can count on God to handle the rest. Matthew chapter 10, it says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. When you're immersed in the Word and you're full of the Spirit, He will speak through you. Trust me on that. It's time for us to rise up, church. It's time for us, like it says in Revelations 12, not to to shrink back from this life or shrink back from death because we love this life so much. It's time for us to stand up and be bold against the accuser of the brethren and to remember that it's the power of the blood and it's the word of our testimony and not a love for this life but for the next that causes us to overcome. And that's who we're called to be in our boldness and courage. We're called to forcefully advance the kingdom of God, and that requires great boldness and great courage in the world we live in now. And as Joshua says in 1.9, be strong and courageous, church. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Let's stand and worship the king.